good to see you all here. Uh, there's one or two that obviously couldn't be here, like my family that were here last week, and there's a few here that weren't here last week, and it's great to have you with us. Um, you'll see the, the, the logo at the front there, which is kind of like the advertising thing. And I, I mentioned, and I think it's probably worth saying again, that uh, for me, that, that picture speaks of adventure and discovery. That, that's what it, you know, looking to the, the horizon and moving onwards and upwards, that kind of thing. And I, I, as I reflected on that, I realized that from, you know, for me, that has been quite a dynamic part of my life, really, to the, the voyage and discovery of truth and to, to find out what it's all about. You know, I thought the idea of living your whole life and have got it wrong, you know, the fundamental purpose for which I'm here seemed to be, to be phenomenally tragic. So uh, I'm glad that you've chosen to join me on this adventure and I'm hoping that it will be helpful and that you will find, as I do, as I'm learning, that you'll find that there are some interesting things and helpful things that you also learn. The logo for Way Up. Uh, is a bloke shrugging and trying to sort of work it all out. And that, again, I thought is worth mentioning uh, because we'd always envisaged that the Way Up course would really be a, for people to actually think about it, to, to weigh it, to, you know, to consider, to not, you know, to not feel you've got to buy into something, to not just accept it because I say, I say it, but actually to check it out and for yourself. So that's what we're going to be doing. And if at the end of this you say, well, I still don't believe any of it, OK. I mean, I'll be slightly sad about that, but it's OK. And uh, so we hope that you'll, jo you'll join with us in it. OK, so moving on. Last week, for those that weren't here, we were looking at, um, at the whole question of, uh, of why, would, why would you believe in God? Is there credible evidence? Is there anything that you can draw on that makes it um, a, a thing to consider and ponder on. And we took to three different areas. The one was amazing design, and we talked about the micro world. I mean, uh, some of you will remember last week we showed an amazing animation of that little fella, which is, what is that? That is a kinesin linear motor, a miniature protein motor that travels across the cell, delivering proteins to various places. It's got an address, it packaged, it sends it, it takes it there and dumps it at the end, and then other, other protein motors bring it back the other way. When you look at the intricate, amazing design at this micro level, it is impossible to accept a kind of view of evolution, the idea that, that we just happen to luckily come into being, you know, with a whole load of chance accidents. It just wouldn't happen like that with that kind of complexity. Uh, so that was the first thing. We also looked at clues in history, and we were looking also at, uh, at the um, chariot wheels in the Red Sea. Um, some of you will remember that we looked at that, and that's one of them there. They are still there to this day, covered in coral and buried in the middle of the, of the water of the Gulf of Aqaba. And then thirdly, we looked at, I couldn't resist putting that on because we were looking at pole dark um, over the weekend. <laughs> Is anybody else watching that, or is it only us that do? No. And I have to say, I was, I was quite entranced by the romance between this young man and this young woman and uh, the tortuous journey that they've been on and you sort of feel for them in it. And we were talking about the fact that all of us carry in us the blueprint of where we've come from. We carry a kind of love tendency. It's more than that. We, 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 look, at, we look for love, we seek after it, we're fascinated by it. Sometimes we spend our lives looking for it, one way or another. And if we grow up in love, it, it does us good. If we grow up in a situation, in a family, where there is no love, then you'll find that we tend to, we tend to fall apart. We are not just chemicals. We are persons who have been created by a father who says, I'm loved. So you can, get, you, know, you can see a lot about where we've come from just by looking at us at our own souls. Okay, well, that was last week. Um, now we go to the second one, which is Foundation Questions. Number two, why different religions? I was saying to somebody earlier, this is one of the most difficult ones to do because it, in some senses it's a bit dull going through loads of different religions and things like that. Um, but it's the question that people often ask. And so to that extent, we're going to be trying to look at that today. I mean, one of the first things that, that tends to come quite a lot, really, doesn't religion cause all the wars? 
you know, and it has to be said that, uh, that religion of one sort or another, remember there's loads of different sorts of religions, so you can't make a blanket uh, statement, uh, but religion of one sort or another has been involved in an awful lot of conflicts down through the years. I mean, I think it's been estimated that something like 300,000 were killed during the Crusades. That was a 200 year period when the church sent its armies into the Middle East to fight with the Muslim uh, invaders as they saw them, and uh, there was all sorts of stuff happened that was not particularly edifying or good. I think there is a reason for that, and we'll come back to that and look at that a little bit later on. However, it has to be said that, that not only did you get that and all the European wars, many of which were religious down through the last couple of millennia, um, uh, it has to be said that when you come to um, the modern time, atheism has far outstripped the church in the people that it's managed to kill. So I don't say that in any sense of comfort, but it does need to be said. If people say, well, religion causes a lot of wars, I have to say that atheism does a lot of damage too. Uh, Five million killed under, uh, or six million, and nobody's absolutely sure, it might be more than that, 11 million under Hitler, just completely slaughtered. So if we're going to choose a worldview that brings peace to the earth, you might have to think twice before you pick atheism as a so. In fact, there have been more people killed in the 20th century than the, high, the entire 2,000 years of the history where the church has been on the, on the, on the ground since that time. So it's a... It's, it, they're stark. They don't answer the question, but they're pretty stark um, things. Now, here's another few questions that people ask, but surely they're all leading the same way. I mean, every, you know, everybody believes in God and everybody believes the same things about God and so on and so on. Um, so, you know, why, why bother? Generally, people that say they're all the same generally don't get involved with any of them <laughs> along the way uh, because they, you know, they, I don't want to be bothered with it. You know, that's, that's the truth of the matter. Religion hasn't got a very good name, generally speaking, uh, in, in Western civilization. But it does also raise other questions, and we were talking about this just before we came tonight. Well, where did they all come from? What is the root of it? How come you've got all these different varieties? I mean, people disagree about loads of things, let's face it, not just religion, but where did it come from? Uh, and I'm going to try and look at that a little bit tonight. What about all the denominations? How come you've got, you know, in, in Lydney, you've got seven or eight different churches, all with different labels on the front. Well, what's that about? Why can't they all be one together and churches together and so on? We'll try and look at that a little bit too. And how about all the various sects, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and people like that that make it even more complicated you know, it's very tempting for people to say, I'll be blown with it. I'm, not, I'm just going to have my own, you know, if I believe in God, I'm just going to have my own private faith. I'm going to go off, you know, on my own and I believe what I believe. I'm not going to get involved with any of that lot. I'm, I'm really fed up with organised religion. Fair enough? You probably heard people say that. You might even have said that yourself. Now, last week I did mention this book uh, up there. Uh, in the Beginning, God. And it's quite interesting. It's quite a scholarly book. It's about 300 pages, and it's really a bit dull to read through. But I'm really glad that I did. It's written by this guy, Winfred Cordouan. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And it's done the, the largest, most comprehensive survey of religion uh, among the peoples of the world. And he came to some very interesting conclusions and, 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 re and found... That, that everywhere he went, in spite of often bizarre beliefs that people had, they all, underneath it all, and underlay, had a belief in one God. And it is interesting that their belief in that one God was quite similar. You know, it was the same kind of character that came across in spite of them all. And he talks about, I mean, just one example. These are the Kikuyu uh, tribe in Kenya. And they have one God that they call Nagai, and uh, he resides on Mount Kenya, and he is all-powerful and all-knowing. I mean, you don't get much different to the Bible there. Uh, he is also an, an intensely moral God. He is righteous and holy, and he enforces morality, and he rules the world. That is their belief. Uh, so if a problem comes, if the, the, the tribe is in extreme circumstances, they go to Mount Kenya, and there they seek after their God until it's all resolved and everything is okay. 
Then, he said, this is the interesting thing, then they return back to their lives and then individually, this is a corporate thing they do as a tribe. When, they, when the tribe need God, they go to Nagai. But then the rest of the time, they come back and they worship their ancestor spirits and their animistic spirits and their spirits in the rivers and, the, and that kind of thing. And he said, this is again and again what you find. So it's not quite as complicated, the religious issue, as you might think. You know, underneath it all, there's a lot of similarity in what people hold. But in practice, of course, it's all very different. Last week, you remember, we showed this scene that it's on a Babylonian cylinder seal. Actually, actually it's Sumerian, but it doesn't matter. Uh, a cylinder seal around about 2000 um, BC. It's extremely old. And it's got that picture, which you have to say is a bit like Adam and Eve in the garden with the snake behind and everything else. And there are numbers, not loads, but there are numbers of insights that seem to indicate that there is a common... There is a common legend at the back of the human race. The Chinese have got it. The Chinese have got a belief that they were once cast out of a garden and they were, permit they were not permitted to go back to it. And every year, for many years, long before Confucius and communism and that kind of thing, that they would, they would go back and make their border sacrifice to the place where they felt that they'd been cast out from the garden. So it's very interesting, I think, that there is indication that there was once an original common faith that there was, and it's degenerated. It's a bit like evolution, you know what I mean? Evolution started with, uh, uh, the world started with a good world, and it's, it's, it, it's degenerating. So it was with faith. So from that, I'm going to go back to the garden. I hope you'll bear with me in this. And I'm going to suggest to you that the entire complexity of religious thing, in the end, comes out of the three major characters that are here in the garden. So I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll kind of try and draw some thoughts out of it. Uh, so Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. <laughs> you, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. It wasn't he was naked, it was that he felt guilty. He felt he'd done what God had told him not to do. And there in that same, I mean, obviously the story goes on, but in that thing you've got three basic characters, and from these three, all the complexity, this is what I'm going to suggest to you, I hope this will make it simple, uh, all, from this complexity comes all the different uh, nuances of religious faith that you will find in the world today. First of all, of course, there is God, the ultimate creator, the revelator, the one that seeks truth and righteousness, the one that seeks to reveal himself to man and says, here I am, God, number one. Uh, that God, the Bible says, has been trying to make contact with human race from the beginning of time and there is a constant stream of revelation that runs down through history but it has often been under attack and has often got confused along the way. The second character that was there in the thing of course was Satan or the serpent as the Bible describes him and Satan is a liar and a deceiver according to the Bible. So there is a spanner in the works. You know all our efforts to find truth and righteousness and faith are constantly interfered by a liar and a slanderer who is constantly trying to stop us from coming to, come to understand it. So Satan is also a potent cause of, of reli religious beliefs uh, or negative beliefs, as it were, so on. Third one is man himself. Man generates his own confusion. Uh, 
So the man is willfully independent. He, he got, he, I, she saw that it was good to eat and it was good for making you wise and it was good for this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. And uh, so the Bible teaches that, there is, that we are flawed. Our character is flawed. We're not that good at truth. So we tend to get the wrong end of the stick very easy. Well, now, if you look at history, with God trying to get through to us and reveal to us, with Satan trying to confuse us and lie to us, and man willfully getting it all wrong and making mistakes, you can see a recipe for a certain amount of confusion and variety down through history. And that's exactly what we find. All the religions of the world, then, I'm suggesting to you, came from these three Roots. It doesn't mean that God is flawed and that he hasn't clearly revealed to us, but that the, 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 the pitch is confused with the other agents that are involved in it. So I'm going to look at it under these three headings as briefly as I can. So first of all, the God line, if I can put it. The line of revelation that where God has been trying to reach us and speak to us and reveal truth to us, though often under attack and confused. Uh, that's Albert Einstein, who I'm sure you knew. He said, the more I study science, the more I believe in God. Well, that's a good quotable quote, isn't it, uh, from Albert Einstein. I would say that the God line of all the three is the most rationally coherent. I mean, they're not all the same in the God line. There's lots of differences and so on. But of all the three lines, they are the most rationally coherent. They make most sense. All of them claim to be monotheistic. So we're looking at all the, mono, you know, they've kept uh, the idea of an original revelation of a God that is one God. And uh, so the, that, that's the, um, so they claim to be monotheistic. And you have to say that that for a start is the, for me, that is the only, that is the only issue that is going to make sense. A universe means it's one, as you know that. And a universe can only be, be the creation of a single God. I mean, how the Hindus get on with that hundreds of thousands, I have no idea. That, that really, to me, that's completely irrational. The fact that everything is made of the same stuff, that everything has DNA, from a banana to a cabbage to a human being to a whale to an elephant, it's all created out of the same basic stuff. All the universe is made out of the same basic elements. About 90, or there's probably a few more now. Uh, they're all made out of atoms and, and electrons um, uh, with all the sort of minute particles of everything. If you run through the universe, you'll find... A, that's why Einstein saw it as a scientist. He realised that when you look at it, it's all amazing, marvellous symmetry and wonder. Uh, and only a single God, a creator, a genius that did it all can, can really explain that. Uh, secondly, not only... Uh, do, does, do we see that, uh, that these faiths are monotheistic faiths, but they all claim to be rooted in history. In other words, you've got some reference point. You can check it out. You know, if, if for instance, Christianity says Jesus rose from the dead, you can check it out. Okay, it's a bit difficult checking it out after 2,000 years, but you can look at the evidence. You can, and people have actually done that and come to the conclusion that he undoubtedly did. Uh, but at least it's concrete, it's in history, it's available to everybody. So it's possible to check out all the claims. So the God line then, and that runs like this. Okay, so I'll take that through. This is a brief history of time. You start with one true God who reveals himself to Adam and Eve, who then got it wrong, and eventually it comes through to a line that God has chosen, the line of Israel. Uh, Israel, of course, was a man with 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and Israel uh, is, re is revealed to by God and becomes uh, a follower. And they become a chosen people. They're promised that a Messiah will come and deliver them, um, and uh, so on. So this is very brief, um, but unfortunately... Uh, by the time we come to Jesus and the Messiah comes, the, the Jewish faith, which was now the inheritance of Israel, has rejected the Messiah. Uh, Christianity believed in the Messiah. I mean, this is very brief. Um, however, for a, that was only for a time. For a time, the church was in a golden age. It was, it was really beautiful. There were holy things happening, miracles happening, glorious things happening. But then slowly, it became increasingly hidebound and increasingly politicized. And under the Roman Empire, you, you, know, you would find that if you, if you were a Christian, you could advance in politics, you could do well. Some of the bishops were like huge princes of society. 
So, I mean, in that kind of corruption, it's not difficult to see how easily you could corrupt the church from the inside. So there was corruption in the church, and that led to it beginning to scatter. So the Catholic Christianity was one stream. People say, well, what about all the denominations? I would say there are probably three main streams in Christianity. Uh, Catholic Christianity is one of them, and I'll look at the other two in a moment. But at the same time, Islam came out. Now, was it connected to that? Possibly it did. Came out in the seventh century, broke away from the church, and formed, of course, what is now one of the most powerful uh, religious movements in the world. So there was Catholic Christianity. There was also biblical Christianity. That came around about the time of the Reformation, about, but it was before that, earlier than that. Men were actually struggling to, to translate the Bible. The Bible had become a dead book. Nobody read the Bible. They just, the church just interpreted everything, and they were, they were told um, what God wanted them to do. It was all interpreted by the traditions of the church. So it was, the Bible was, it was Latin, and most people couldn't even understand it. And so there was a movement to come back to the Bible, and that, that actually initiated a, a biblical movement in the church. And that has run down through all the different denominations. You will find there's quite... So if somebody says to me, what denomination is it? I'm not worried about the denomination, but whether they're biblical, Catholic, or the third one, of course, is liberal. In the sort of last two or three hundred years, there was a strong movement towards a liberal view of Christianity, which was much more um, connected in with the general kind of culture and the, and the signs of the times and people's understanding of uh, stuff like that. So that, that again was, so many people that would be liberal Christians would probably not believe lots of the Bible. So you've got, you've got some that believe the Bible, some that, uh, that believe modern thought, and then you've got some like Catholic people that, that would put the tradition of the church uh, in front of all of those things. And then, of course, you get the sects and the various groups, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on, that all come out around about the 18th century. Okay, I'll work my way through those very briefly, but not all of them. The Judaism was the faith of Jews. So that's one of the great monotheistic faiths, but of course it's not got huge numbers of people. It's primarily the faith of national Judaism, or Israel, as it now is today. The, the Jews were the remnant of Israel, and they were a chosen people, and they were intended to be a light to the nations. That was God's plan for them. And uh, in Exodus 19, and verses 5 to 6, we get their kind of thing. It says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to. So God's purpose for Israel was that it would actually be a, a kingdom of priests, a kind of missionary nation, a, a nation to win the peoples of the earth, to convey his message. to They never really quite managed to do that, but that was God's purpose for them. It's not been an easy calling. Uh, we said last week that the, that the Jews are a unique people in history. They've been persecuted more than any other people. And it's very difficult to see why. For some reason, they seem to stir up hatred among the other nations. You have to say, is that an indication of spiritually where they've come from? There is somebody out there that really hates Jews and wants to see them destroyed. Well, you have to say, well, that seems quite likely. So it's not been an easy calling. They were chosen by grace. Uh, but they were regulated by covenant. They were given a covenant, a law, um, a contract that they lived by, which they constantly failed at, but have still, in spite of that, remained faithful down through the generations. The Jews are still waiting for the Messiah, but it has to be said that many, and some believe this is very significant in terms of the history of the earth, that many are now turning to Jesus and accepting that he is the Messiah and following him. There are quite a lot of uh, Jewish Christians now. So let's go on to Islam and look at that. The Muslims accept that Jesus was a prophet. They've got some very peculiar views as far as Jesus is concerned, probably because when uh, Muhammad started, he was still quite friendly towards Jews and Christians. That changed as time went by and he became more and more hostile and uh, more, there was more and more conquest in the way. But in the beginning, he was more friendly. And so you get a feel for this. So he sees that Jesus is, is a prophet. And what's even stranger, he believes, uh, Islam believes that Jesus is the one that's coming back. 
And that's completely inconsistent. You know, you would think that Mohammed will come back if anybody's coming back. But as far as I gather, they believe that, uh, that, that Jesus is coming back, but they don't accept that he is the son of God. And, and that, of course, is out of their history. And the fact that he, they increasingly see him as supreme and really offering. And I would say now that, that they're, they're almost to the point where they hardly admit that. You know, they're not very friendly. To, certainly the, the extreme Muslims are not very friendly towards either Christians, certainly not towards Jews. Now, I put there that it might have been a reaction to corrupt Christianity, and I think that's probably a fair point. I mean, Muhammad grew up believing that the church believed in three gods, the Father, Son, and the Virgin Mary. Uh, so you get some indication. So the church has to put its hand on its heart and say, it has really corrupted the message. The church corrupted the message, and it may well be that Islam... Um, you know, followed that and uh, reacted to that. And, and so the mess continues. It's people. You know, God is revealing clearly, but, but we, mess, we mess it up. Uh, Muhammad then is the supreme prophet, as we've already said. Islam is legalistic, and there's something very comforting about a legalistic faith. You know, if, you, if you're going to follow it, you've got to do dump, dump, dump. You've got to do this, that, and the other. There are five pillars of Islam that you have to do. One, I think, is to make a pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, you know, once in your lifetime. One is to, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, pray to Mecca five times a day, and so on and so on. There's a, there are five things that you have to do in your lifetime. So it's actually quite legalistic. It's also spread by conquest. And I think it's true to say, though not many people know that, that Islam actually ultimately sees itself as conquering the world. Uh, it already tried to conquer Europe way back in the past and is now uh, slowly trying to infiltrate and conquer once again. Western leaders seem to be completely blind to this and have no real idea of what is growing up in the midst of them. Um, so it is actually quite militant. Many wars have been fought by Muslims through the year, often to conquer territory that was once held uh, by the church and Christianity. Uh, the faith itself is culturally transmitted, generally speaking. So was Catholicism, it has to be said. Um, but Islam is culturally transmitted. You learn it from your parents, you grow up in the culture, and it is often enforced by compulsion. If, you know, we know, don't we, honor killings and things like that. If you, if, if you don't, if you break away, you are often regarded as a traitor uh, to Islam and you may well find yourself killed. So it's pretty, pretty radical stuff uh, in Islam. So people often say, well, you know, surely they're all the same God. No, I don't think so. Allah is not the same as the God of the Bible, the God that revealed himself as Jesus. And ultimately, I suppose, for me, the big difficulty with Islam is that it is totally dependent uh, on the reliability of the prophet. You know, there is no possibility uh, of external verification. He had his revelation. He said, this is it. This is the Quran. I've been given the Quran. It's come from heaven. Take it or leave it. But uh, probably take it. If you don't, don't take it, you could find yourself in trouble. Um, and uh, for me, any faith that is simply, you know, like that, uh, you've you just got to take it, end of story, is, is a bit dodgy. It doesn't give you any possibility to say, hang on a minute, what is this about? You know, and of course, we increasingly find that that is showing itself more and more. Okay, so I'm not going to look at all of them, otherwise we'd be here forever. What about the various sects that have spun off uh, from it? In, in Mark 13 and verses um, uh, 5 to 6, I've got a thing in me, Bob, in here. Mark 13, 5 to 6. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming that I am he, and they will deceive many. Interesting. Many will come in my name and deceive many. So we were warned that this kind of thing could happen. Now, of the various sects that I'm talking about, there are a number of them that were probably familiar. The Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, uh, otherwise known as, they were founded in 1830. So they are one of the oldest of the modern sects. Jehovah's Witnesses were founded in the 1870s. <coughs> Christian Scientists were founded in 1879. The Church of Scientology, much more recent, in 1954. 
and the Unification Church, the Moonies, in 1954. Now, I haven't actually heard anything much about the Moonies. They were very strong a few years ago, but all of them, apart from the Moonies, came out of America at one particular part in history. So you have to say, is there a reason for that, and what are the common factors? Well, I, I suppose, really, the, um, the factors that, um, that I would say, first of all, each of them claims to be the way. Um, you know, we are the way. Everybody else is wrong. The church is wrong. Everybody's wrong. You know, you, you, the only way that you can actually find the way is to come into our group. Each uses some part of the Bible uh, in order to found their scriptures, but then, of course, um, bases other scriptures around that, which they add to it, uh, adding scriptures and teachings of their own along the way. Again, like Muslims, they're born out of special revelation. Somebody had a particular revelation, and that is then put into the message and added to the Bible to uh, get it also. Uh, often these sects are domineering and manipulative. I mean, I, I've not realized, until I saw a, a uh, a program on Scientology recently and the lengths that they go to protect themselves and the extent that they go to to persecute the people that come out of them. And I realised that they all got this one thing in common, that once you, you know, you will often be loved into it, but then once you're in it, you try and get out of it and you will verify you're not loved. You know, you'll often be excluded, shunned and everything else from it. So one of the signs of a, of a sectish kind of thing is this sort of domineering and manipulative atmosphere in which people are not generally uh, cared for or loved. It has also been a massive source of confusion uh, in Western society and probably all through the world. I mean, certainly there are loads of things now that Christians don't do because all the other groups have done it first. <laughs> you know, we don't go and call on people's um, houses to talk to them about Jesus because at the moment you do that, people think, uh-oh, what's that? You know what I mean? They're deeply, our culture is deeply suspicious of anybody religious has to be said, and that is in no small measure due to these sects and groups that, with the best will in the world, have been, you know, really sort of avid and, uh, uh, and dedicated, but have done much harm, really, because they're all, tell they're all singing from a different hymn sheet, but saying, well, we are the right hymn sheet. Okay, so that's, I mean, I, don't, I, hope, that's, I hope that helps. Um, that's the kind of, that's the God line, the monotheistic line. There are sects and groups and denominations and uh, major faiths like Islam, Judaism and so on. All of them have come out of that line. God, God revealed clearly, but man uh, does make a mess and uh, often gets confused. Now the man line, if we follow down the man line, this, I found this one of the most interesting of all actually. If you start with Adam, you go through to Adam and through the Old Testament we are introduced fairly early on to the mighty characters of old. There's actually a verse in Genesis when it says, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Uh, interesting, it's not only the Bible that says this. Many ancient writings and histories tell of a period in the past when there were great heroes, some of them giants. The Bible also talks about giants. There were giant people in the past, uh, uh, people of great significance and boldness. Now, of course, not only that, but we know from the Bible that some of these characters lived huge, long lives. I mean, Noah lived to be 900 years old. Now, you may say, well, I don't accept that anyway, but suspend your disbelief for a moment and travel with me. It's very interesting. If after the flood, people were scattered out into the world, they had the memory of these characters that had lived nearly a thousand years. They were godlike figures. You know how easily it is that we, that we turn people into icons. And, you know, I mean, we do it with with pop stars and cricketers and footballers, you know what I mean? We're always looking for somebody to lift up and exalt and make bigger than they are. So you imagine if your great-grandfather lived a, th a thousand years and walked with God and seemed to be a person of immense significance and strength, you're going you're gonna to think they're, they're godlike, really. And that's exactly what happened, I believe. So I, I read this book here. In fact, I'm rereading re it. Again, I've been rereading it this afternoon. And it's called a, Hist a Historical Treatise of the Travels of Noah into Europe. And it is absolutely fascinating.
I don't know where it comes from. It purports to come from quite an ancient historian. But anyway, it tells what happened at the end of the flood and how uh, Noah went through the world trying to establish colonies and plant civilizations and, and put his sons in charge of things and so on and so on, right the way through the ancient world. It's actually quite detailed in it, the people that he appointed, many of the names of the folk that he appointed and so on and so on. Um, and some of the names that are there are really interesting. Noah himself is called Noe Janus. He's given a surname, Janus. There's a reason for that. It has a significance. But it's interesting because the Romans had a god called Janus. And Janus, of course, is the god from which we get January. Uh, Janus was a god that faced two ways which is why I suppose he was made the god of January, because he was, he, he was out of the old year and into the new year. He was looking back to the past, he was looking forward to the future. The interesting thing is that that completely fits Noah, who, was, who came out of the old world, the pre-flood world, and was now the kind of the patriarch of the new world, as men were established. So Noah Janus. Now that's interesting. There's also um, Japheth, of course, you'll know is Noah's son, um, but it's thought that that may well be the inspiration for the god Jew. Jupiter, or, or Yapitar, uh, as it sometimes appears. And in fact, you get loads of these names. Saturn is the name of one of the king of Armenia. And in fact, that becomes a common name for kings in the ancient world in that post-flood period. Now, these are all now in the kind of the deities of the Roman, you know, Roman kind of thing. Um, and I think if we knew more, we'd probably find even more than popping up. Uh, Osiris, that was one of the Egyptian gods, was actually a character, a grandson of Noah, who was a valley. I mean, it's very, it's got his story there. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, people like Hercules, they all occur in this history as part of it. So it's a, you know, we can't be absolutely certain, but it's very interesting because it's a part of history that none of us know hardly anything about. The Bible is only really interested in the line of Abraham and the way through the promised land. But the whole world was being peopled by these heroic figures. That, and certainly it says that when they died, many of them were deified. You know, Noah particularly, although he never sought after it, when he, when he finally died, after 400 years, I mean 400 years after the flood, or 300 years, he was still alive. When he finally died, um, they, were, they were building temples to him all around the place. So man, in his willful blindness, starts to erect loads of these mythologies about hero gods, demigods, people that were, were not actually much better than men, but, uh, but were, were somehow bigger and bolder and everything else. Um, and so the, the mighty characters of old, I believe, were often the inspiration of the many gods that we find in many of the religions of the world. There are less of them now, um, but certainly in the past, you will be aware of the Egyptian, the Greek, the Roman, all of them had whole groups of deities. They were quite well-defined characters. And many of them had these names, like Saturn and Jupiter and so on and so on, that we've now given to planets in space. Um, so it, interesting to me that the root of these things is actually man's tendency to look for hero figures and erect idols that he could then bow down and worship. The, the modern, the most modern um, version of this particular um, kind of tendency, of course, is Hinduism. In fact, you could probably say that is the only one remaining of the uh, ancient religions that erupted during this period in the post-flood world. Uh, Hinduism, of course, uh, spawned Buddhism, and uh, Buddhism and Hinduism together spawned New Age. So although um, I, I would say, generally speaking, within Western culture, Hinduism is not strong. Buddhism is certainly quite a lot stronger, and New Age is even stronger still. So lots of people with New Age tendencies will have a Buddha, and so on and so on, as a part of that. Uh, now, we'll look at those in a minute. These then, whereas the, the main line, the God line, they're monotheistic and historical, the man line faiths are polytheistic. They've got loads of gods. And I did read somewhere, uh, Hinduism has something like 200,000 different gods. How you can have that many, I find it difficult to imagine. 
and it is largely mythical. You know, there are loads of stories that you think, well, you know, I mean, if you have a job believing Christianity, you would definitely have a job believing some of these faiths. And people, but because it is so strongly culturally reinforced, people believe it. You know, people stick with it. They go through loads of ceremonies and so on without ever really thinking back. And even when, with Western sort of education, they think, well, I don't really believe that anymore, they will still feel themselves true to those uh, old religions that they had. Okay, so we'll just briefly look at that. That is the Hindu god Ganesh. And there are some interesting things that, that you often find particularly in Hinduism, I mean, you, you get this in other as well. You know, in Roman and Greek thing, you get centaurs that are half man, half horse, um, and the minotaurs, you know what I mean? All that stuff, mythology. And, and you get a lot of it in Hinduism. Most of the gods have got two sets of arms, uh, including this one. This one's got an elephant's head. You've got another one that's got a, a cat's head. I mean, it is very, they are bizarre. It does raise a question as to whether there's a reason for that. And some think there might be. Some think that in the past, men started to experiment with swapping body parts and came up with some weird combinations and then started worshipping them. I do not know. But it is weird how common these things are, and particularly in, uh, in Hinduism. Uh, comparable to the Greek and the Roman religions, although far more. The Greek and Roman religions have got far less and they're a bit more defined circle of heroes, whereas Hinduism has got absolutely millions of them. Deified heroes are demigods. So lots of the religions of the world. So they're not, the, they're not you know what I mean? There's a different league here. This is a completely different league. This is man-made stuff that we've brought out of our imaginations. Often the gods in these uh, faiths are morally compromised. They're often not very nice. They certainly don't come across as holy. They're often quite brutal and, and fickle in the way that they act and so on and so on. Uh, reincarnation is deeply embedded in Hinduism. The idea that you keep coming back on a merry-go-round. I mean, some people say, well, I quite like the idea that you have another god, but it doesn't actually work out like that. Uh, in reality, it, it means that, uh, that if you don't build much karma, you're likely to come back a lot worse than, the, than your last life. Uh, so I wouldn't really recommend it, you know. So that the whole of life is a question of trying to increase your karma so that you can come back better next time. So it's an endless merry-go-round of going round and round and round uh, in the hope that one day uh, you'll, you'll get off the merry-go-round and you'll, you'll go to nirvana or heaven. It does mean, of course, that Hinduism has not, generally speaking, been known for its compassion. You know, if, why would you help somebody if it's their own fault? You know what I mean? If you're, if you're in the gutter, that means that you, you're, you haven't lived a good previous life. So it's up to you. You, you know, you've got, to, you've got to do better for next time. If you do better for next time, you'll come back a bit higher next time. So it tends to be completely self-centered. That's not to say that you know, Hinduism doesn't come up with some deeds of compassion. The influence of Christianity has affected it, so it has more so than it used to be. But even so, still, uh, it tends to be a quite a cold kind of faith. It doesn't really believe in helping people. Uh, Buddhism then spun off that. And it, it's interesting that... Um, uh, oh, I suddenly got old note there. It was a reaction from Hinduism. Because of this endless merry-go-round of karma, coming back and back and back, uh, you know, sometimes in a worse position than you were before, um, uh, Buddha was looking for an escape. And so he, he, he set out on a journey to try and find enlightenment. And... Uh, and he came to the conclusion that the key to enlightenment, the key to peace, as he saw it, was to let go of all striving and all passion. Don't feel anything too deeply. If you feel something too deeply, uh, then you're going you're gonna to suffer for it. So don't love too much. Don't hate too much. Don't feel too much. Don't strive too much. Let it all hang out. Chill, I suppose, will be the conclusion that he came to. Um, interestingly, as I think we said last week, he came to the end and he said, I've still not found the way. So, you know what I mean? Don't, people, I think people kind of have a Buddha because they feel that Buddha will create a sense of peace and calm for them. And maybe, maybe a statue in your garden does provide a bit of peace and calm, but he never really found the answer himself. He's been kind of 
glorified and deified and ironically turned into a god. And meditation, yoga, all of these things are phenomenally popular um, in the whole New Age movement. But his desire was to escape the endless round of reincarnation and emptiness that came with it. So that's a little bit about Muslim. You, you, you may want to come back and ask me questions. I can only tell you as much as I know, which may not be too much. Okay, the Satan line, finally. Um, good, I think I'm more or less on target. Um, good, okay. So the devil then was also a, a, a character, a player there in the garden. And, uh, and he has also had his own. He's not only messed up other religions and confused people, but of course he also has his own personally inspired things, often through spirits, evil spirits, and so on, that the Bible talks about, and uh, we find very widespread in society and in culture. Uh, so often through the occult, uh, through witchcraft, through astrology, spiritualism, and Satanism, Satan is still active in the world today, and often with devastating consequences. In fact, uh, some of my, my most powerful um, uh, uh, words about the reality of Jesus was when I was confronting somebody that was demonized, and uh, to see the name of Jesus that brings cleansing and freedom and sets them free was itself a revelation. Because you sort of come into it and you think, you know, is, is this going to do it? But in spite of it all, you say, in, in Jesus' name, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And uh, my, my son still tells me, they remember that happening in our home when we had a big, beefy guy that, uh, that when we commanded Jesus to come out of him, he flipped right over on himself. It sort of resonated through the whole house. <laughs> <laughs> and my children were thinking, oops, what's happening in there? But they told me afterwards and they realized then that Jesus was real and that there is a name that is above every name that actually is powerful to the throwing down of, of uh, dominions and so on. So dominance by, by spirit beings is something that, you, that we're familiar with in, in many parts of the world, often in third world situations. I think that's a picture in Haiti, uh, there you can see the sort of voodoo dolls and things like that in the, beginning, in the foreground there. And that is still quite common in many parts of the world and it's often popularised in films and so on. There is a, among many cultures a belief in pervasive spirits. Even when they've got a belief that at the back of it all there is God. There is a real God. As far as they're concerned, real God has gone on holiday. He's not there. He's not doing stuff. So for everyday life they, get, they contact the spirits but often with uh, devastating consequences. And there is a tendency among those in this group to seek after a kind of nature religion, to worship trees and rocks and things like that. And it's interesting, a lot of New Age is going back in that direction now. You know, so you go and hug a tree and uh, stuff like that. You worship the, the, the creation rather than the creator. That's an, that's an old uh, enemy tactic. Um, awareness of evil spirits, of course, in voodoo and stuff like that, which are really evil, you know what I mean? It's like the stuff of X films and frightening horror films and so on. Uh, often they have a belief in the supreme being, as we've already said, but primarily their desire is to placate the spirits. They don't, you know, that does not, their belief in the supreme being does not really figure much in it, but they do have that there. Um, <clears throat> in the Bible, of course, we find in Mark chapter 5, the story of the man uh, that Jesus and they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. And this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart, broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So here is a man that is in a desperate plight. Jesus, of course, as we've already said, uh, sets him free. Jesus is still able to do that today. Uh, but we need to recognize that the impact of evil spirits upon people's inner life and psyche is very uh, damaging. And we have it, we have taken it into the, the West. Um, so there are all sorts of occultic things. I mean, that I think that is a book on Amazon. Um, everyday witchcraft, making time 
for spirit in the too busy world. Um, and uh, many people are dabbling in one way or another, in spiritualism, in astrology, in Satanism, in witchcraft, and it all seems quite harmless. Uh, I'm sure nobody here that has, although if you have, do come and talk to us afterwards. Uh, I would not recommend it to anybody. The enemy loves to draw people in and then uh, mercilessly exploits us once we are in. And there are many people who need to be delivered and set free. I, I do sometimes wonder if the massive increase in mental health issues is afflicting our society, particularly young people, is not to some extent due to this. You know, the number of young people that are committing suicide now is astronomical. Yeah, and that's one of the signs of, of demonic activity. There is a kind of self-destructive mechanism. So this guy is running through the tombs and he's trying to cut himself with stones, trying to destroy himself. What, what Satan does in a person's life, you know, it often is to bring about a sense of self-loathing. But then you can't, you know, then persuade you can't be free. You can't get free. You can't get free. And so a person is instead in a prison that they can't get out of. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But this has a completely opposite um, effect. Okay, finally, what about multi-faith? Well, you'll, you'll gather from what I've said so far that I'm not all that keen on that. But this is, the, this is a normal mantra for multi-faith. Buddha was not a Buddhist. Jesus was not a Christian. Muhammad was not a Muslim. Muslim. They were teachers who taught love. Love was their religion. Well, that's not actually, that's not true. Um, it, it, it sounds good when you say it quickly, um, but, but it, they're all different. They all have different uh, views and, uh, and emphases. The religions of the world are not the same. Uh, for a start, you have to work out whether it's one God or many gods. Secondly, you've got to work out whether you uh, lay your life down to win people or you go and conquer them and threaten to shoot them. There are very different techniques there, if you think about it. So Muhammad and, uh, and Jesus are not nearly the same. Uh, you have to decide whether it's one life that we live and then comes judgment, or whether we keep going around with repeat incarnations. So multi-faith then is not really true. It's a way of bundling everything up in a bundle and saying, well, all those religious people will put all in the same box and then maybe they won't fight each other anymore. Um, Multi-faith, though, generally speaking, is driven by a secular agenda. If, if we, um, we say that all religions are true, then we're ultimately saying none of them are ultimately true. You know, if you can hold them all together uh, like that, then where, you know, uh, there, there's no, you know, there's no reality in any of them. Now, you can't say five different scientific theories are all true. They can't be. One is true and one is not true. So one is true, one is not true. My, my hope during this course is that we will, uh, all of us, if we haven't already done so, we should be on a, a search to try and discover what is the truth. And I'll be all likely to help in that. So we started with three lines from the garden, the Satan line, the God line, the man line, all of them, I believe, have created the confusion that there is in religious life today. God is a clear a revealer of truth, but other things and other people are mucking up the system. Final key questions that I think are worth asking. First of all, what are the credentials of this faith? What, is, what does it stand on? Where does it come from? Can we verify its central claims? To me, that is essential. Can it, can it be verified? Have I just got to take somebody authoritative and say, that's it? Uh, thirdly, is it based on history or myth? Is it kind of concrete? Can you go back to a certain time in history when it happened, or is it all airy-fairy, and so on? And fourthly, does it accurately diagnose the human condition? I believe that Christianity fulfills all of those. Now, I haven't actually done Christianity tonight. You might have noticed that. The reason why I haven't done that tonight is that it's not, it's not comparable with the others. They are completely uh, um, in a different league. Complete. I believe that. Uh, time will tell, and we will see it as we go along. 750 years before Jesus actually came, there was a prophet who said that one would come. And he said he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief, with suffering. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. I mean, the Bible tells a love story of God, who when we became separated for him, came looking for us. 
sent his son for us, sent him to die for us, paid the ultimate price so that we might be redeemed and saved and have a future. There is nothing like that in the whole of history. You can bring all the religions of the world together and they pay into his youth, I believe, compared with that marvellous love story that the Bible tells. Great. Well, now, you may not have any questions at all, or you may have loads of questions. Rita. Right, okay, so that's uh, Satan, who is a deceiver. Yeah. Why did God allow him in the garden in the first place? <laughs> I really wanted that question. He was an angel first. As far as we know, he was an angel who fell. And, I mean, it has to be said that, that generally speaking, God is, is very kind and loving, even to people that rebel and turn away from him. So there is evidence that although God knew that Satan was opposed to him and seeking to destroy his stuff, he, he was a free being. He could do what he pleased. I mean, that's the interesting thing. God gives us the freedom. And it was only really in the, when the cross happened and Satan overstretched himself and sought to take Jesus that he was then put in the wrong. Does that make sense? So, I mean, I mean I've, I've often thought that it's a little bit like um, God draws Satan into the arena and Satan then goes wrong and fails and sins and then is under judgment. So the cross brought forth Satan's judgment. But it was not until then that he could do that. Yeah, Conway. Yeah. So what, uh, what Conway is saying for the sake of the video is that God has created us with freedom, free beings. And that was, so, that was also true of angelic beings. They were also free. And God will not take that away, which is, you know... And, and strangely enough, I mean, I think all of us, you know, people sometimes say, well, why doesn't God just stop us, you know, stop all the evil happening in the world? But we all want freedom. We don't really want a big boot to come out of heaven and stamp on us the moment we step out of line. And uh, so it really, what we really want God to do is to stop other people doing what they want to do. You know, particularly if they do negative things. But not us. But God said, well, I let you all free. And in that freedom, you have to choose the right way. You may not. That's the awful responsibility that we have. I mean, it's a hard choice. It is a hard choice. Uh, and we all wrestle with it. You know, we, I, think, I think there's a sense in which, you know, to actually love God is a, is a demanding choice for everybody. You know, because there's a sense in which we all, it's a bit like children with their parents. You know, you, you, want, you like your parents, you love your parents to be there for you, but you don't want them always telling you off. You don't want to have to be accountable to them. And, uh, and that, I think, is the same with God, really, that we... Have we answered that? And, and the, the whole religious scene is the sort of an, uh, an expression of that freedom that we have, which we could use well or badly. Yeah, Hinduism culturally reinforced. I mean, loads of... Uh, religions do reinforce themselves culturally. The one that, that tends not to is evangelical Christianity. Um, because for those of us that hold what I hold, the Bible, the Bible says you must be born again. You can't inherit it from your parents. God has no grandchildren. So each generation has to meet Jesus for themselves fresh. So it's very difficult to spread the true thing culturally. You know, you can, you, can, you can teach your children to be good people, but there are some of us here who are Christians and our children are not Christians. We found we couldn't actually pass our faith on to them. You can have your own faith, but they've got to find their own faith. So certain things like religious observances and stuff like that, you can pass that on. And that's and that what a lot of religion is, of course. But a living encounter with God, as, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, that you have to do for yourself. And if you don't, then it dies. And that's probably why um, uh, Catholic, Catholic countries are better at passing their 
religion on through the generations than Protestant countries. A lot of religion is, is routine and observance of rituals, and that you can pass on. And you will sometimes find, uh, you know, people in cultures observing rituals that they don't know why they're even doing it. But they've learned that at their parents' knees and, and they kind of maintain it. But what you can't, um, and you can to some extent pass on beliefs. You can say, we believe this and you believe that. But what you can't do is pass on a living relationship. You can't pass that on. The moment you reach out and seek after God, the Bible says God comes looking for you. So I think we can say quite confidently that if anybody says, actually, I want to meet God for myself personally, then he will meet with you. Yeah, I'd agree. And you will have an exp a, a transforming experience to him. But it has to happen like that. You can't, you can't get it off your mum and your dad. Post. Okay, right. Anybody else now? Karen, did you have a... Okay. Why, if, if the Jews were the chosen people, why did they not accept the Messiah? Um, yep, uh, well, I mean, the answer is because they're like human beings and they're sinful. And the Messiah, when he came, was not what they were expecting. Although it was written there in the prophets, they didn't spot that. They missed it. And so they were expecting, they had so full in their heads at that time that the Messiah would be a deliverer and would set them free politically from the um, political people, that when he came and died, they could not stomach that. But some, of course, did. And, uh, and the core of the church in the beginning were, were Jewish men. And uh, so it was, it was all part of God's plan that the, that the Jews would form the core of the new people of God that would then be taken out of every nation under heaven. But you're quite right. I mean, that's the great, that's the tragedy of history, that he came, I mean, it says in John chapter 1, he came to his own home and to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. So that is the great um, uh, tragedy, really, that hangs through history, and, and happens again and again, where people that ought to have seen it didn't. So isn't it true that, um, what you're saying is, isn't it true that many religions are all about power and influence? And I think that's absolutely true, and that's where Jesus is the one exception to that, because he comes and dies for us. And if you want to see this working out, all over the world, Christians are being persecuted. And Christians were always persecuted, even by the church at some points in history. I mean, that's the irony of it. Um, and that, to me, is the diametric, that's the, the complete opposite. That's how you can begin to see that although it looks confusing at first, that there are certain characteristics of, of God's true revelation that are, that are not in anything else. So that Jesus comes and lays his life down for us, and, uh, and so on. Thanks, Carol. Yeah. That's very interesting. I mean, I, I don't think Christianity is losing its membership. In many parts of the world, it's massively multiplying. Places like Africa, China, even Russia, many parts of the world. It, in the West, because of the particular, I suppose, cultural uh, atheism of the West uh, and materialism, uh, yes, it is definitely. Although even then, that can be, you know, you can, lots of churches are closing, but there are new dynamic churches that are beginning to open up in other things. So even in the West, it's not quite as bad, if you look at it that way, as it looks. But in many parts of the world, it is increasing. Now, what are happening to other faiths? I think there is a resurgence in, you know, often where it's identified with a nation. You know, like Hinduism is resurging in India and becoming very nationalistic. Even Buddhism which is supposed to be a peace in places like Malaya is quite violent, which seems to be a bit ironic, doesn't it, for followers of Buddha. I mean, it just goes to show really that that's what people are like. People are like that. So I think, I think this is, I'd be very interested to know. I don't absolutely know that for certain. Uh, oh, sorry, that question was, uh, is, is Islam uh, trying to slowly infiltrate, not just by aggressive wars? And I think the answer is yes. I mean, Muslims have actually said that they've got France. You know, they're now a sufficiently large minority in France that they can take the country in time. And they probably feel they're not so far away in England. But generally speaking, Western leaders completely <laughs> shut their eyes to it and feel certain uh, that we'll be fine with our, our you know, 
our agnostic worldview. Um, so there is a lot of infiltration going on. Um, but there are also people that are turning to Jesus in the Muslim thing. Huge numbers, in but it's patchy in different places. Uh, is there an aspect of truth in every religion? I mean, I'm sure if you, were, if you were trying to win people in a Hindu culture, you would have to try and look at it generously and kindly in order to speak into it. And that would be true in any kind of culture, I would think. I mean, that is the trouble. It always, it's so subtle. You know, you could actually get more with the half-truth than with a complete lie. So it would be hard to say. I mean, I, I would tend to say, certainly on the basis that, that I've felt come to me through this, uh, that the, the sources, where these sources have come from, where religion is, is man-centered, then it's going to be probably largely not true. Um, where it is God-centered and revelation, then it will be true. But there's a lot of distortion interwoven in that. And even, as I say, within Christianity, there's all sorts of bits of it that I think we probably have to say are, are probably a bit distorted. And so, you know, we're all in the position, we've got to weigh it up. Yeah. You've got to find your way through. And, uh, and hopefully we'll do that. Nobody else will have done, but we will. Great, bless you. Let me just bow in prayer for a final close. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that we've been able to talk about some of these things. We've uh, shed a bit of light. We haven't understood everything, but we thank you for the opportunity to do that. We thank you that you've given us minds that we can inquire and curiosity, that we can pursue things. And I pray that you would continue with us in the next few weeks and help us, Lord, to grapple with all sorts of issues and to come out with some good, clear answers. So we pray for your blessing on us and ask that you go before us now to our homes. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Great, good, thank you. Oh, well. <laughs> 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 <laughs>